stories of economic growth, job creation, and business success from across the 11-county community of Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania. Now, here's Matt Gabry. So in this special five-part series that we're doing on the energy industry here on the Growing Greater Philadelphia podcast, we're really excited to welcome what I would call a veteran, and I say that with love and affection for our friend Will Agate, who's with us from Amoresco. He's part of the leadership team there. He is the vice president for Microgrid Services. Will, it's great to have you. Matt, it is really great to be with you also. And I should share in the spirit of openness and transparency, Will and I have worked together for about five years in his various roles in uh, economic development and real estate development and in the energy space, because you really are an expert when it comes to that energy space, which is why you're part of the uh, Amoresco team leading their microservices. Thank you very much. I will gladly volunteer a little additional information about what a journey it really has been. I bet it has been, yeah. But Will, speaking of journeys, I want to go back to what brought you to the greater Philadelphia region, because you do come to our community with a unique perspective, because you weren't born and raised here, which I actually see as a real asset, because you appreciate things that others may take for granted. Well, I would like to think so. So I guess the story really starts with the fact that, as uh, I think I indicated earlier, I grew up in uh, northwestern Connecticut in Mm -hmm. New England. And so being that that is the part of the world that I grew up in, it was kind of unnatural to be inclined to end up in Boston Mm -hmm. for my career. So I ended up uh, going for four years to uh, Gettysburg College. Mm -hmm. And from a variety of different circumstances, I had this opportunity to what was amounted to a summer job in uh, 1981. Well, what quickly grew on me was that Philadelphia itself had all of the same kind of ingredients and all of the things going for it that Boston did. Right. But we just, as Philadelphians, especially back then, we weren't used to talking about it. That's right. We didn't celebrate it the way we could have Not and at should all. have. That's, that's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So it quickly became apparent to me that there was really no rush in mm-hmm. leaving Philadelphia. Right. And I got very involved with some of the you know, activities and just in this general area and joined a singing group called the Savoy Company. And nice. that's where I met my wife. And, you know, as they say, the next thing you do is you look in the rearview mirror and, you know, here you are, you're all settled. That's right. Well, how fortunate for us in greater Philadelphia that this preconceived kind of notion of Massachusetts and Boston as a destination for Will Agate shifted gears and you ended up at Gettysburg College and this internship uh, supposed in internship that led to more of a career path or a job in Philadelphia in 1981 really put you at the heart of our community. We're really fortunate about that. I will take issue with that. I feel as though I'm the person that's fortunate. It's just really a case where the dynamics were just right for a guy just getting out of college, understood that there were all these things going for this community. And I'm a guy that really loves to be the underdog. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, fast forward to how we 
we talk about our eagles as always being underdogs. Sure. I mean, this is part of, frankly, our culture here. Right. And so what I thought we could uh, you know, work together on was really just promoting this. And uh, at that time, I was uh, my first job here was actually with the Reading Company, which was the resurrected previously the Reading Railroad. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunity for that company was to take the remaining real estate that they owned Mm. and basically put it to a good use and derive some cash flow from it in order to be able to operate uh, its overhead. So I want to come back to that, Will, because I want to go back just a couple years before that, if you don't mind. Take us back to, you know, your high school days. You're getting ready to go off to college. You're thinking about what your career path is going to be, I suspect, although it may have been a little fuzzy back then. But you find yourself at Gettysburg College. Did you have a vision of what you wanted to major in and how you landed on a specific course when you got to Gettysburg? And what was your major at Gettysburg? So I'll start with the answer to that last question, and that will sort of paint the picture a little bit. I did not go with one major, in part because I was, frankly, too interested in the two subjects. Mm -hmm. But they were related. Some might not think so. But the two majors were economics and physics. Hmm. And the reason that worked for me is because, as all of us have to deal with, we have to you know, be self-evaluative in instances of understanding where are my strengths going to be. And I'm a very analytical person, but uh, to answer the first part of your question, I now realize that one of the things that has always driven me in terms of my decision-making and my path forward is some kind of a situation where there's community building involved. Mm -hmm. And so what happened when I started off getting out of Gettysburg College with the Reading Company was that I realized pretty quickly that there was a big cluster of land down in downtown Philadelphia mm-hmm. that really hadn't been developed at all. There was actually, I think it was 13 or 14 acres where the uh, Reading passenger system used to come into Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Many of, of us older timers remember the train shed. Right. But that was going to then be converted into what we now have uh, in the tunnel that goes under, you know, adjacent to Market Street. Jefferson State. And and is now referred to as Jefferson Station. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the point of all of that is that I just sort of had my eye on the fact that, you know, this Reading Terminal Market existed. There was going to be this huge opportunity to do with this abandoned, what used to be called the head house, Right. right on market and all of this acreage behind. And I had the talents of being able to manage real estate, starting with things like reading electric meters and figuring out how to kind of keep uh, buildings uh, afloat while we were developing this redevelopment plan. Right. So you may not have even recognized it at the time, but that site today is where the Pennsylvania Convention Center sits, correct? That's correct. And that's uh, when I actually was uh, successful about a year after moving here in getting one of the vice presidents to agree to give me a chance down in Center City, the first thing that we had to pay attention to was the fact that uh, Redding had entered into a long-term bulk lease with a landlord that will not be named, Mm -hmm. but who really ran that place into the ground. So this was a huge opportunity to get engaged, not just with physical assets, but really getting engaged with the people that you're trying to both get 
to be tenants and the people that you're trying to get to come as customers. And it was really developing that skill set mm-hmm. that is what uh, kind of got my career started. And then one or two years later, I guess it was a year later, is when Reading decided to go after and compete for the Convention Center project, which I then became uh, very involved with for the next two years of my career. What a great kind of serendipitous opportunity for a young professional recently out of college, had an interest in economics and in physics, who could work on what I will call this canvas that you may not even recognize at the time as a canvas that ultimately you could create something new and get your community engagement fix, if you will, as as you referenced earlier. Yeah, that's exactly, Matt, that's very perceptive to kind of define it that way. And I think that, you know, we all go through our careers and some of us, it's a more stable kind of a thing. But for others of us, we go out on the limb and we keep trying new things. But it all comes back to figuring out ways to kind of use your strengths, personal strengths, but also figure out how those personal strengths can be applied to your strengths of your community and of a place like Philadelphia. And every step of the way, there were such exciting things that were changing about the city of Philadelphia in particular. And that's really plain and simply, you don't realize what you're doing necessarily at the time, but it's plain and simply what created all that opportunity for, as you put it, a real young guy just out of college. Yeah. And I say this, Will, only because it's a fact not to be disparaging in any way, but almost 40 years later, you have seen a lot of change and evolution in not only the greater Philadelphia landscape and the city specifically, but also in the energy space and in the real estate space. And I want to fast forward. We can bounce back and forth to some of the different experiences you've had throughout your career. But most recently, you're now part of a new company, 20 years old this company is, but new to greater Philadelphia called Amoresco. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about Amoresco as an organization and your mission and focus. Absolutely. And you're right, Matt, that I will uh, start there, but it will, in fact, tie us back to where this story uh, was starting. But Amoresco itself is a really incredibly cool company founded by a few guys that were already really on the cutting edge of where the energy market was starting to go. I would say that really it was the late 90s and into 2000s when all over our country, we were starting to pay attention to how do we, in a meaningful way, get serious about creating energy efficiency. So, you know, if you look at our even longer evolution as a country, you know, up until that point in time, it was all about where does the energy come from? Mm -hmm. How cheaply can we use one form of energy to create another form of energy, in most instances, electricity? And that because of just technology, Back then, everything had to be massive. Everything had to be big. So when we thought about the least expensive way to produce electricity, it was always very large production facilities. And therefore, you needed a very large distribution system that we call transmission Mm -hmm. in order to get this electricity to places that needed it, like Philadelphia, that in many instances would be 100, 200, 300 miles away from the source. Right. So that was what we used to pay almost all of our attention to. Well, then we started to realize that the saying that still goes today is that the cheapest form of energy 
And the most clean form of energy is, in fact, the energy that you can figure out how not to use. Right, right. And that's what we also call energy efficiency. Interesting. So there were companies that were starting to pop up at about the time that uh, Amoresco was formed. And one of the models is called an ESCO model, an energy service company model. And it basically revolves around the idea that in many instances, you can create so much energy efficiency in carrying out a project that the cost that you are avoiding or the utility cost that you are reducing is sufficient to pay for the capital improvements required both to make that energy efficiency and what's very exciting, also additional capital that can be spent on things like schools or public buildings or what have you. So that's where the ESCO model came from and that's where the name Amoresco came from also. So the Amoresco part or the Amer part is American. It's American. Yeah, yep. gotcha. Yeah, that makes perfect yeah. sense. Thanks for sharing that. That's a really sure. interesting perspective because I will say the name Amoresco is very specific. So I figured there had to be a story <laughs> behind it. That's absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's an important story because that is really at the root of where this energy environment has really started to shift. Right. So Amoresco, while it's been a very successful organization for coming up on about 20 years now, is relatively new to Philadelphia. Share with us a little bit more about how Amoresco landed here. So there's a little bit of a story that I hopefully can tell here because it's part of dovetailing back to you know my personal journey. And sure. that one of the things that uh, I hope we'll have a chance to talk about is that after going from a Reading Company and doing a lot of different things, very hands-on things around real estate management and real estate development and figuring out, you know, places where there is some kind of a community in many instances that needs some kind of help or is faced with some kind of a challenge. Fast forward, I became very passionate in around the year 2007 about how do we also engage in greener technologies Mm -hmm. and coming back to this whole subject of how do we, in fact, deploy more energy efficiency in what we do. And so it's generally referred to, in my definition, as this whole world of sustainability. Right. And so in 2007, I got very serious about how to do that and how to actually practice that. And a couple of years later, very fortuitously, I run into a guy who I also knew for a number of years since he was hired by PIDC, who is now PIDC's president, John Grady. Sure. And so John Grady went to a meeting with me, and he came out of it, and he basically said, you know, Will, you've got all of this real estate background, and now you've got all of this knowledge in energy and sustainability. You should maybe come down and visit us at the Navy Yard. Right. And so the short version of that is that uh, in February of 2010, I joined PIDC and had the absolute honor of running the Philadelphia Navy Yard, which I ran for six and a half years. So back to the question that you asked about Amoresco. During that time, I met Amoresco because we had developed this pretty progressive energy plan for that community. Mm -hmm. And we got to a point where we had a project 
that we wanted to go out with an RFP for. And uh, Amoresco was one of the companies that responded to that. And that was my first major introduction to Amoresco. And that's when I realized, wow, these guys are capable of doing some pretty incredible things. That makes perfect sense. And I want to dive into a little bit more about the Navy Yard. And before we do that, how fantastic that you ran into John Grady and had a chance to cross paths with him professionally. And that led to a new opportunity with PIDC, who manages the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And that's where I wanted to go to next. Just briefly, Will, if you could share with those who may not be as familiar the story of the Philadelphia Navy Yard and how it's evolved, because you referenced it as a community, which is exactly what it is. But the average listener may not necessarily hear Navy Yard and say, oh, that's a community. Right. Well, there are so many places I could go with that question. And, you know, just to be very clear about it, the the Philadelphia Navy Yard, back to one of our first conversations in this discussion, we have so many attributes that we don't always go out there and advertise. And certainly the Philadelphia Navy Yard project is something that those of us who have become associated with the project, we realize how great it is. And so one of the things that uh, was really important to me in my tenure there was to try to take that and turn it into much more of a story and turn it into a story that people would really be able to relate to on a much more sort of personal basis. And then lastly, take that story away from Philadelphia so that we could literally use a place like the Philadelphia Navy Yard to attract people that were not necessarily engaged in what we were doing here. Yep. So the Navy Yard, I call it a community because it really is a unique place that understands a lot of different things. I think at the root of it, understands the change that we are going through in our environment and what in particular our younger uh, generation of people want Mm -hmm. when they think about going to work and when they think about who they want to work for. Mm -hmm. And there could be no better example than to pick Urban Outfitters as a great example of a company at the Navy Yard that really gets it. So Urban Outfitters starts with not allowing their employees to bring dogs to work, Mm -hmm. but encouraging their employees to bring dogs to work. So you've got a place where people People have a lot more latitude and they feel good about where they are. And then you add the assets that PIDC has just done a terrific job of creating now under the leadership of uh, Prima Gupta, mm-hmm. things like the Navy Yard transit system mm-hmm. so that we are getting people from Center City into the Navy Yard. And one of those add-ons was that we looked at how we were dealing with the question of energy and figuring out how can we deploy more of these sustainable and green technologies. Mm -hmm. And that's what led to a very progressive energy plan that we created for the Navy Yard community. That makes perfect sense. And and I want to put a fine point on that, Will, and you tell me if I'm off base here at all. But back in the late 90s, the federal government actually owned and operated this parcel of land at the end of South Broad Street in Philadelphia called the Navy Yard. And they decided to divest several different Navy Yards across the country. And they essentially gave that land back to or gave it to the city of Philadelphia. And under the leadership of PIDC, 
PIDC has been developing and managing that property from just a, a parcel of land to a real asset. So to your point, the reason we refer to it as a community is because there are now almost 14,000 people, a little over 160 companies, including Urban Outfitters, as you referenced, who call the Navy Yard home. And it's also home to, and this is where I really want to dive in with you even more, the Navy Yard is home to something called a micro grid. And I suspect that you had a hand in, and Amoresco may have also been part of the equation to create this thing that we call a microgrid. So, first of all, am I on track with that scenario? You're, you're not only on track, uh, Matt, as you always are, you're spot on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Talk about the microgrid. Sure. And sure. that whole concept of how do we provide this energy kind of structure, if you will, to this community? Sure. So step back, if you will, and try to remember the beginning part of my describing sort of how this energy environment is changing so dramatically. Mm -hmm. And recall that I was talking about the fact that really for 150 years, in particular when we think about electricity, and I understand that you had a great interview previously with Andy Ott from PJM, mm -hmm. who's in charge of a lot of the management involved in sort of making sure that our transmission system is progressive and safe and doing what it should be doing. Well, so what we now are realizing is that for a whole variety of reasons, some to do with the technologies that are now available, mm -hmm. but maybe even more importantly, to do with the fact that we live in an environment where the customer, the consumer chooses what they want. Mm -hmm. And what the microgrid does in a very interesting way is it's not just the technology, it's more importantly, it's the business application, is that it allows you to deploy local forms of generation. So instead of those huge coal plants, for example, that might be 300 miles away, yep. maybe there's a way to economically deploy a clean natural gas burning generator on site. Mm. And if you start there and you create a distribution system that is quote unquote smart, has mm -hmm. smart meters, has its own communication system, has some kind of a computer network operations center that is basically managing all this, you can actually isolate your community from the larger grid. That's technically when you are getting into the arena of microgrids. Gotcha. So the microgrid is really one of the new business models, technology models that we are starting to see being deployed in the United States and actually all around the world. So harken back to the story of the Navy Yard. Mm -hmm. That is where we put this progressive energy plan together, where we could actually justify economically going forward with this microgrid model. And that is where we now take the microgrid model and we talk about the Navy Yard externally to Philadelphia and bring all that economic attention mm -hmm. to Philadelphia. So all of these pieces really belong together. Gotcha. So just to put a fine point on that as well, Will, is the Navy Yard today operating off of a microgrid or it's an option that kicks in 
as needed. First of all, I will say this about the subject of microgrids, mm-hmm. and this is why I was hired by Amoresco, is to really be a thought leader and a doer behind all of the different ways that you can apply microgrid-related solutions. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the Navy Yard, it is not operating separately from the grid. But it has, I like to refer to it as a foundational microgrid. Mm-hmm. And the other analogy I like to always use is it's very much like thinking of your smartphone in that it's a platform that is going to allow for these new technologies that are being developed that have a lot to do with renewable power Mm -hmm. and a lot to do with strategies that we can deploy in order to address dangerous situations that develop from climate change. So it's a place where you are managing your energy in a different way. And ultimately, you might take sections of the Navy Yard and separate them from the big grid. Gotcha. But that has not been done yet. Gotcha. It's a work in progress, and it's a vision. This is a work in progress, no matter where you're talking about microgrids. Yep. And that's a good segue, actually, Will. And folks, we're talking with Will Agate. He is part of Amoresco, and specifically is part of the microgrid services team at Amoresco, which is an energy company that really specializes in what we refer to as green, clean, and sustainable focus. So the Navy Yard's really one good, what I would call, case study or example. Share with us potentially other what I would call customers. Is there a university? And this struck me as you were sharing the story about the Navy Yard. Is there a county or a township within a county that could say, hey, we want to create a microgrid type of system in our township in order to either offset or complement the use of energy for our community? Or maybe it's an office park. What other kinds of yeah. um, customers, if you will, are out there? So at the earlier stages of developing any new market, you always start with who are your potential customers? And Mm -hmm. and what are the pros and cons that might apply from one kind of market to another? And the thing that is one of the many things that's so exciting about the microgrid model is that there are such incredible applications to a variety of very large user groups. Let's start with real estate development. I mean, that's the most analogous, really, to what the Philadelphia Navy Yard is. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a real estate developer and you're out there trying to figure out what are you going to include in your offering that's going to attract a customer Mm -hmm. so that they don't go to one of your competitors. Well, there is just an incredible offering to be able to create with a microgrid higher levels of renewable power, Mm -hmm. more resiliency. That's a key word that we use and we'll come back to. And so the real estate developer is definitely interested in the microgrid. The next category, just in somewhat random order, is absolutely colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. Because in that instance, what's really motivating the college and university are two things. The first is the safety of its inhabitants. Mm-hmm. So what does happen the next time that we get some big you know, storm like Sandy? Mm-hmm. And what do you do with all of those students and in some instances faculty that are basically stuck there? Right. So a microgrid provides an answer to that question relating to resiliency and being able to keep part of your profile up and running mm-hmm. while you're weathering that storm. Another category that 
our audience that's listening to this podcast, hopefully still listening to it, can imagine are like healthcare systems. Right. We worked with a Philadelphia group last year that was uh, specifically developing housing for elderly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and imagine how important that is. So there are these big sectors of our economy that will be able to benefit by having a microgrid. And my vision, and I really hope that this is going to take off just like the smartphone did, is that this will be a conversation in 20 years about every community having some level of microgrid capacity because of how much sense it makes. Right. Is it too elementary, Will, to be able to suggest that a microgrid is kind of a modern-day version, more sophisticated version of a of a backup generator? Is that, is that it's, too simple? Uh, it is too simple, yeah. but it's an okay place to start mm-hmm. because one of the most important things that we all need to continue to do more and more is to really relate our offerings to what the customer is thinking about. And that is one of the paths that gets a customer to really thinking and getting serious about microgrid is if they already have a backup generation need. Mm -hmm. The reason that I'm a little hesitant to kind of leave it at that is that there are very big differences. To start with, the energy that's used for backup systems, for the most part, is just the dirtiest form of energy out there. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, it's only there for when you have that backup need. What's so nice about the microgrid business model is that you are figuring out from an economic performance basis those assets that you can use on a regular basis. And so you're getting economic benefit out of that. Gotcha. And you are also having them there for when you need that resiliency. So we're not waiting for an emergency. We're incorporating it into the day-to-day operation to maximize efficiency. Absolutely, Matt. That's very well stated. That's where I hope that people can start to sense why this offering is really getting to be so exciting because you're solving basic problems. And, you know, we are living in a world of change. There's Mm -hmm. nothing that's stopping that. Anybody who knows anything about climate change knows two things. Number one, it exists. Right. And number two, you can't change it. Right. So number three, what cities, and let's give a lot of credit to the city of Philadelphia in this regard, the Office of Sustainability. Years ago, when I was still with PIDC, they realized we have to adopt climate change adaptation strategies. It's coming. There's nothing we can do to stop that. Hopefully, we are, as a society, going to do things to you know prevent it from going too far. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, it's this mitigation strategy that's really important. Yeah. And I love that terminology of adaptation. How do we adapt to it? How do we adjust for the oncoming, what we know is coming? That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's a really good perspective. So I know you referenced this term a couple times, resiliency. Talk a little bit more about how do we put either a price tag on resiliency or how do we factor that into if you're talking with a customer, frankly, or a prospect of the importance of resiliency being built into the potential of having a microgrid on site, or if it is already on site, how and when to kind of exercise its use and integrate it into the operations. Right. Well, to be honest, the term resiliency is, I believe, 
actually wrote a piece about this earlier this year and talking about 2019 predictions. The term resiliency is really the elephant in the room. Hmm. And it's a big challenge, not because it can't be quantified, but because each of those specific sectors that I was talking about of application have a different way of putting a value on it. Mm -hmm. So let's just quickly start with the simplest of examples and a sector that I didn't even mention earlier, and that is just a straight up manufacturing or industrial complex. You know, there's a very specific economic loss that occurs if their power goes down. Right. It just gets measured mathematically against how much production are they not going to be able to produce for that period of time. So there's your answer to what the resiliency is worth. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at the other end of the spectrum. How does the mayor of Philadelphia or council or first selectman of a town or mm -hmm. a county commissioner, how do you put a price on the resiliency for your population if they are down for four or five days? Right. You know, how do you put a price on the number of deaths that might occur from that kind of an event? Mm -hmm. And how do you put a price on all of the lost goods and merchandise and those are the things that are much more difficult to really quantify. And once we come up with a standardized way to do so, which is what we are trying to help to lead with, mm -hmm. I think it's going to become a much easier value to add to the equation. And when that happens, that's when we're really going to start to see the microgrid model taking off. And using that as a pivot point, because that's a really good, interesting way to think. It's about planning for the future. And are we seeing municipalities, businesses, developers, colleges and universities starting to say, this is the no-brainer. This is like the future of construction management to install this to manage our and deploy our and transmit our energy. Yes, we are. The easy answer is that all kinds of communities are starting to understand that there is this new way of doing business. And to your earlier point, we're starting to realize that this doesn't take the place of the traditional way in which we operate. It just is a supplement to the traditional way in which we operate. So what really this comes down to is being able to figure out how progressively you are willing to, back to this whole theme that I started this whole discussion with around community building. Mm -hmm. That's, in fact, what microgrids is all about. It's right. community building. And so what you do is basically go out there and you have to let the market sort of allow this whole concept to percolate up. But there are many communities that are very serious about deploying these solutions. And there are many more that are not yet serious about it. And so in that regard, you have to be patient and you got to make sure that you're getting the information out so that people have something to work around. That's one of the big things that we are doing through the, the microgrid services division of Amoresco. So, folks, that's Will Agate. He's with Amoresco. He's part of the microgrid services team there. And, Will, I want to get a little bit more granular, and I hope I'm not getting too into the weeds here, but how is the microgrid actually fueled, if you will? It's not just one 
source, right? right. It, it can come from yep. solar or it can come from wind or it can come from, I guess, traditional electricity and liquid natural gas and other kinds of sources. Is that fair? Oh, it's very big aspect of what's so exciting about this mm-hmm. is that when you talk about a microgrid, so if you uh, remember my analogy to a smartphone, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like a smartphone. When you buy a smartphone, you aren't limited in terms of what the applications are that you can put on that phone. You are, in fact, the opposite. You're given a platform that you have, I mean, limitless opportunities for whatever is important to you. Now bring this back to how we common people want to make our energy decisions. Mm-hmm. And we should think about a resident all the way up to a Fortune 100 company decision maker. Mm-hmm. We want a certain thing. So it just depends on what it is we want. And hopefully our society is pushing us all in the direction of clean energy. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that is where your solution is likely to start. So in the case of a microgrid, each customer gets to decide what is important to them. And it's a little bit like picking a stock portfolio, Mm -hmm. you know? You've gotta pick a certain direction, and that might be the resiliency, or it might be in a different situation that you just wanna have 100% renewable power. Right. You have to start with what your strategic goal is, and then we have the microgrid to be the platform from which you can deploy it. So it's all of the above. You get to decide what's important to you. And then the second thing to say here is this part of our energy future is evolving so rapidly that there are technologies that are, are going to give us ways to, for example, store energy mm. and other ways to produce energy that we haven't figured out yet. This platform gives us the ability to basically have a 20-year plan, 30-year plan, 50-year plan, where those different forms of energy, as they come into being, can be deployed. Pretty exciting stuff. It is really exciting stuff. And I want to shift it and come back to something that you have a passion for. And I love the fact that community building is really part of who you are. Yep. You have the privilege of being part of, and we have the good fortune of having you very engaged with our Greater Philadelphia Energy Action Team as part of our Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia, Select Greater Philadelphia, part of our Chamber family. If you could talk a little bit about how that Greater Philadelphia Energy Action Team is really coming together to address opportunities and challenges as it relates to energy by promoting not any one particular path, but providing insight into options and solutions for a variety of audiences. So I'm going to just start by making, a, I think, a pretty bold statement to answer that question. I think what's exciting for me in getting involved with this group is that it's so much about attitude. And what I mean by that is that, again, as I said earlier in this discussion, it used to be that all we thought about was the production of the energy. And where we are coming to in as a society is that we're realizing that there are many other value propositions that are important to us, the consumer. Mm-hmm. And what's so really interesting, and I think it's going to be a great uh, continuing discussion, is that this group, GPEAT, mm-hmm. is of that attitude. Right. We get that we have to get past just talking about petroleum refinery or a pipeline or those sorts of things. This is very much about how do we provide solutions for our community. And why is that so important? Well, 
it's very simple. There are so many different ways that communities around the country and the world are competing for business. And the faster that we as a community, as the Philadelphia 11 County community, can really embrace this mm -hmm. way of thinking, the faster I can guarantee everyone that's listening, that is what's going to attract companies to Philadelphia, right. that and other things. Yeah, sure. No, I totally agree with you. And I love the bold statement you made about it's about attitude. And you can feel it in the leadership of John Walsh from UGI and Craig White from PGW, who are co-chairs of GP. Yep. But it really goes across the board to folks like yourself at Amoresco and Jim O'Toole at Buchanan and, and Andy Levine at Stradley yep. and others. These folks come in with an attitude of how do we work together? How do we make things better? How do we advance for the common good? And that's a really inspiring kind of approach that I know GP is taking. Will, you had mentioned at the onset of our conversation, and as you're describing Amoresco, that it's a cool company. And it is. It is. And one of the reasons it's a cool company is because of Will Agate. Because you've had a really cool, interesting background. And where I'm going with this is from real estate to economic development to sustainability and energy management. What do you tell a young person who's getting ready to embark on a career? They could still be in high school. They could be in college. They're thinking about different paths. What kind of advice would you give a 18 or 22-year-old today as they're embarking on their journey? Well, I will just as an aside a comment that I try to make it a habit to have those kinds of meetings with people who are really thinking about their career. It doesn't mean that they just have to be getting out of college, sure. but they could be thinking about what they've been doing in much the same way as I did in the middle of my career mm -hmm. and you know what we do say about this. And there are two things that I always say to everyone and I just I think it works in every instance the first is pick an interest you know you don't have to be right 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 oftentimes <laughs> and, there is you know, no right answer right? I did not go to Gettysburg College to study real estate management back in the uh, dark ages when I was going to school there wasn't a real estate management degree right and so it was something that I could immediately relate to and so pick an interest is item number one item number two is go at it with everything you got mm -hmm. you know be passionate about it and it will open doors that you don't even know exist and you will be infectious and people around you will sense that you are really interested in whatever that subject matter is and I think that that's another way of also talking about our younger generation I mean so many people are really passionate about what they're doing or if they're not passionate, they're not doing it anymore. And so it's a little of that, but I think that that's really important. And then I guess I said there were two things, but the third thing is, you know, maintain flexibility. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a really rigid uh, set of uh, things that have to be accomplished, you know, you might get there. But I have found certainly with my career that none of these doors, I mean, to be able to run the Philadelphia Navy Yard, I mean, I could have never set out a career path for that to have happened. Right. And, and more recently, to be running around North America, you know, helping communities to understand this microgrid proposition and figure out ways to deploy it. You know, those are things that have happened by being flexible. Absolutely. Adapt 
adapt, adjust, and good things will happen for everybody. Which is one thing I want to yeah, maybe please. end on. Is yeah. I think it's one thing that I wanted to say that I didn't have a chance to say please. earlier. I remember, uh, for example, when I had made this decision that I was leaving uh, PIDC, this perfectly wonderful job. I wonder whether my wife will ever forgive me You right. know, with a job that I could have literally retired with, probably. And I actually did a little of a, an exit interview with John Grady. And I looked at John and I said, you know, John, I got to be honest with you that one of the things that I have gotten to at this point in my career with PIDC and with the Navy Yard is that I now have tools that I'm going to be able to promote the Philadelphia Navy Yard and Philadelphia much more effectively from the outside right. than from the inside. And this is one of the points that uh, you and I were talking about in getting ready for this discussion, is that this is one of the greatest things that I'm doing right now, mm-hmm. is that I am able to see how other communities are relating to the same subject matter. That's right. And in some instances, I'm able to now engage with people in those other communities and tell them a little bit about Philadelphia. And I think that that's a very exciting thing that I get to do when I'm out there figuring out uh, you know, how to help with this new microgrid model. I totally appreciate that, Will. You are promoting the Navy Yard in Philadelphia and the region, not because it's your job, not because you have to, but because it's your passion. Yep. And I love that. That's a really uh, distinctive perspective to look through. I, too, want to bring it full circle, Will, if you're comfortable with this. Take us back to 1981. You mentioned Savoy players, yes. singers, right? Savoy Company. Savoy That's Company. Right. You met your wife there. Are you still singing? And can we hear a couple uh, tunes? Well, probably <laughs> the, the most important question is, am I still married? <laughs> I'm assuming you and are. I am. To the and same woman it's that really you uh, serenaded? Incredible as it is. Yeah. We are just getting ready to celebrate our 35th year anniversary. Excellent. So, so that's part A of the answer to the question. Yeah. The Savoy Company, for those who don't know the name, is actually a Gilbert and Sullivan company. It's mm-hmm. the longest running, continuously running Gilbert and Sullivan in the world, interestingly enough. Wow. And it was a great place to, uh, you know, do a little of the singing, mm-hmm. which I am sorry, I am to disappoint anyone. I'm not going to do any singing today. Smart man. Uh, <laughs> but it's also a really great place to, you know, meet people. And sure. We had a lot of fun for a few years uh, with that organization. But it's also one of those threads that we've tried to talk about a lot today in that even though I'm not doing that anymore, Mm -hmm. it led eventually to my joining a church choir, which was really fantastic. All these tentacles. And then the next thing you know, I've got a little boy at the time who's uh, about nine years old who had a very gifted voice. And so that leads to the fact that he gets asked to join the Philadelphia Boys Choir. Very cool. And the next thing you know, my 11-year-old son and I are on a two-week trip to China and to Korea. Nice. As now, part of the Philadelphia Boys Choir. Very when cool. When would you ever get to script that one? Right. So, exactly. Uh, it was, uh, the singing lives on, but uh, right now it's mainly in the shower. So, 
<laughs> Good to know. But we have Gilbert and Sullivan, the Savoy Company, and ultimately your wife for crediting you being here in the greater Philadelphia region for yeah, your that career. That is a true statement. That <laughs> surely great. is. Will Agate, he's uh, part of the microservices team from Amoresco. Thank you so much for taking time out to share with us more about Amoresco, more about microgrids, and more about the energy sector in our community. And thank you for being part of Growing Greater Philadelphia. Thank you, Matt. It was a real pleasure to be here, and I look forward to answering any questions if anyone uh, is so motivated. We're here in the Navy Yard, we're here as Amoresco, and we're here to help solve these challenges and do so creatively. It's been great to be with you.